Hello everyone and thanks for joining us for this episode of Private Equity Power Talks Map of the Maze. I'm your producer Richard Ayliffe. Those of you who are Pep Talks members or regular listeners to the podcast will know our content has been understandably geared towards the COVID crisis over the past several months. Now as we come out of lockdown and begin to get our private equity journeys back on track we wanted to bring you a podcast we recorded at the tail end of last year with Sykes Cottage's CEO Graham Donoghue. I think Graham's growth strategies and acquisition process will give you some food for thought as you begin to adapt to the new normal. Now over to Sam and Graham. Okay, so here we are at the next episode of our podcast, Map of the Maze. I'm delighted to have Graham Donahue join us this evening. Graham is the CEO of Sykes Cottages. Living Bridge invested in 2015 in a primary deal. And uh, you joined fairly soon after that investment, and uh, it's it's been a flying success, hasn't it? You've uh, <laughs> you've really accelerated growth. Business is now managing about what is it, twenty thousand properties, nineteen thousand five hundred and fifty eight. Okay, not far off. Yeah, yeah, close enough. So congratulations on the, on a on a great transaction, and here we go again, the second time round. Um, it's too much fun. Yeah, well, you know that. Managing that level of growth, and annual growth is what, 30, 30% plus? Yeah, we've, we've grown about 35% every year for the last sort of three years, and EBITDA has grown a bit ahead of that. We like to have leverage yeah. in the numbers. Yeah. So just what we're going to cover in this podcast is some of your experiences, I suppose, coming into the CEO role in a private equity-backed business and, and really sort of what you brought with you and really some of the experiences around your organic and acquisitive growth strategies uh, and how the business has changed and grown up. But I suppose my first my first question that I have for you is that um, our, you know, our founding members usually have had some source of inspiration, something that they've carried with them into the role and have, have, have used within the role. So I just ask you that question. What was, was, that, was there an inspiration for you in terms of how you've uh, developed as a CEO? Um, I mean, I'm a bit of a book junkie. Uh, I read a lot. I listen to a lot of audiobooks. My wife says that's not proper reading, but I, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it counts. So you know, I've indoctrinated myself in everything from learning about mindfulness and the importance of mindfulness through, you know, Freud or sort of a Carl Jung, through to the classic Stephen Covey sort of a Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, people yeah. yeah, or even the Eighth Habit in terms of leadership. Um, but I think in the role that I've performed through this business, Sykes, there's probably two or three books that um, really helped me and we used them to help form a strategy. Uh, the first one was good old Jim Collins, Good to Great. Yeah, uh, I love that book. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the test of time almost. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I made most of my team read that book and really to learn about the idea of a hedgehog principle, which is, you know, what you're really good at and what you believe you can be really good at and because the hedgehog knows it's really good at defending itself. What are you really good at? Mm. Uh, the second book that we spent a bit of time um, reading is a book called Delivering Happiness uh, by Tony Hirsch. Uh, he ran a business called Zappos, which he later sold to Amazon. And that book was all about delivering just awesome service because we really wanted to understand how could we deliver awesome service? What does it look like? And this is a company that sells trainers, you know, shoes, and it was worth over a billion when it was sold. And then the final book, and probably the most powerful one, is a book called A Dream of a Deadline. Mm-hmm. And this is the book that we use to help form our strategy in terms of, you know, where do we want to be, which is the dream, the deadline, what time are we working towards, 
And then how do we execute it in terms of what's called the key ways? Mm -hmm. And so, again, we use that as a template to help define the strategy over a three to four year period. In fact, we went from 2016 to 2020. How do you think it helped the people, your team? Clarity of purpose and sort of a, you know, a simple visual that you can talk about and everybody can see mm. all around the organization. The, the problem with creating these visions and trying to communicate them through the organizations is quite quickly they can become wallpaper and yeah. people forget about them. And uh, this was a really simple vision. It was pithy, as in, you know, it was just, you know, really easy to sort of understand. People got it because it was measurable, but also people understood what role they were playing in delivering it. We then defined what we called OKRs, objectives and key results that sat under each of the key ways to deliver the, the vision and the mission. Um, and everybody had their own set of OKRs and we had them quarterly. So what, what are you doing in this quarter? What are the key results in this quarter? How do we measure it? And most people had no more than maybe five and we ragged it. So, you know, red, amber, green, how are we doing? And we really just focused on the red things mm. and we did that constantly. So everybody knew, you know, what part they were playing to deliver the vision, uh, where they sat in the organization. And, you know, I used to walk around the organization when we had sort of a 200 people and ask them to sort of, a, you know, what are we trying to do? Do you know what you're trying to do this month? Or do you know what you're trying to do this week? And everybody was pretty clear. Mm -hmm. So we had that. So the process went all the way, cascaded all the way through the organization. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody was aware of. Yeah, and when I, you know, when I would do a, like a town hall or floor brief every month, you know, I'd always start with, what are we trying to do this year in mm -hmm. terms of the vision? How well are we doing against it? So, you know, how far or what percentage complete are we against that vision? Um, and then I would go through the key ways, you know. So, you know, our first key way was building a trusty brand. So where are we against trusty brand? Where are we against, against delivering best experience? Where are we against delivering owner's choice, i.e., you know, getting owners to work with us? And the final one, and the most complicated one, I think, was platform. So we recognized early on we were trying to build a business for exit. So therefore, we needed to build a platform that could scale beyond the business as it was, you know, when we first started. So we put platform as our final key way. And then we underpinned the organization or the house model with foundations. And the foundations were the values of the business. Um, and you put it all together, you had a beautiful little house model and everybody had little badges. And when they, mm. when they went in the morning, the screensavers was the house model and uh, we'd have little t-shirts and your yeah. books and everything. It was, it was real, right? It was, yeah. it, it wasn't yeah. a gimmick. It was very clear in terms of this is the mission that we're on. This is what we're trying to achieve. And this is where we are against that, that mission on a, on a regular basis. Yeah. And this is what the future will look like if we achieve this mission. Exactly. And you know, no one wants to stand up and talk about EBITDA, yeah. you know, profit, revenue. I mean, most of the employees, it just the glaze over. They're just not interested. Yeah. But we're taking people on holiday. They're having a great time. Uh, and we're helping our owners make the most of their property by filling it with happy guests. Pretty straightforward. And people understood that mm. and they got it. The, 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 the end result was you could back flush it into a sort of a revenue unit, mm. an EBITDA number. But, you know, that wasn't that interested the organization, but they understood last weekend, 25,000 people went on holiday with us. And as a result of that, you know, our owners, um, you know, had lots of happy guests in the properties. Yeah. We believe, I believe there is a massive advantage to be had if you just step back and you think about 
you know, a big picture process that you can plug into your your whole organization that people can get behind. But I'm not sure how many people do that. I think a lot of organizations um, overcomplicate things. They're trying to come up with something that might sound really good to an investor or maybe really good to the city or, you know, might sound good in a boardroom. But, you know, who are you, you know, who's your real audience? You know, what is it that you're really doing? Um, and how do you make sure everybody in the whole organization from, you know, without calling out anybody to pick them, but, you know, we often would sort of uh, pick individuals in the organization um, that were more junior and sort of a say, would this person understand what it is we're trying to achieve mm. and what role are they trying to sort of do? I often find that this model, when I talk to people about it and I show people it and I explain the simplicity of it, and then people go and buy the book, mm. <laughs> which I think might even be out of print, um, or you yeah, can get it. It is out of print because I looked it up. <laughs> it's, you can get it on a yeah, well, audio book. Yeah, I'm sure I can sell you one for an, <laughs> an extortion sort of a fee. Um, people go, oh, wow, that was really simple. They use some examples. There's a good example where they talk about um, JFK trying to put a man on the moon and bring the man back within the decade mm. safely. And they use that as a sort of a vision. And therefore, what's the mission we're trying to do? And what do we need in order to achieve that? You know, we need rockets that can get to the minute back. You know, we need mm. X number of hundreds of millions of pounds from Congress, et cetera. So there's lots of great examples that you can sort of say, oh yeah, that makes sense. You know, mm. I, I can see the line of sight. And I think you have to keep challenging yourself saying, you know, what's the objective? What's the key way? What's the mission? And how does that lead to the vision? And if you can get that line of sight, um, you know, I think you can be, can be quite successful. So uh, let's, let's talk a little bit now about the um, the exit process. So how did you set yourself up? Because I know we, we met probably about 18 months ago and you were thinking about it then. You were really beginning to prepare yourself for it then. It's probably probably further back than that. But how did you set yourself up to, to deliver a great process? Um, when we did the house model, we also had a go at writing an investment memorandum. At so, that point? Yeah. And, and, and we sort of said, what is it we want to say about the business, you know, to future investors? Not really knowing what those investors, who they would be, whether it be private equity or trade or something else, mm -hmm. but what business are we in and what do we want to say? That was quite useful because, it, you know, it made us sort of recognize and realize that, um, you know, we had a lot to say, but we also had some gaps in um, you know, capabilities and some gaps in sort of our story. So we did sort of put that in the drawer a little bit for, I would say about two years. And then in, in October, I think it was, um, 2018, approximately, um, we then started seriously quite thinking about sort of the exit sort of a process um, and thinking about who the buyers would be and how do we make sure we have the widest possible buyer pool, addressable sort of a buyer pool we could. Um, and we did a piece of work looking at, you know, what the story would be, what proportion would be about a UK story versus being an international story versus being a technology story versus being a consumer brand story. And we, again, we, we sort of mapped that out. Um, we also had to make a decision, which is myself and the CFO made a decision to pretty much take themselves out of the business for at least nine months to run the process. Mm -hmm. So we had to ensure operationally, you know, nothing was going to go wrong and the business was in a good sort of a, you know, healthy state. And thankfully, thankfully it was. Um, 
So we did a lot of work upfront, sort of a prepping, and then we um, decided to run a process with um, um, investment banks. Um, we come up with a whole bunch of criteria. Of to what select an investment bank, a process just, to select the investment yeah, bank. Yeah, process to Who's select. Who's going to run the process? Yeah. yeah, exactly. We had a process for the process. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you know, typically as it was quite a detailed process, as you can imagine, yeah. we had, you know, big matrixes and scoring sort of uh, and weightings and yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And so we sort of ran a process. Um, and what actually happened is um, just prior to that, we, we, we had one particular investment bank who'd approached us who said, um, we've done some work um, in your sector we um, think the biggest opportunity for you is to think about the US market because the vacation rental market in the US is quite large and we did some work on it. So could we just work with you for three for a period of time to um, to sort of, like, you know, um, guide you through that sort of process? And at the end of it, if you like us, you know, you know, you can put us into the process. Um, and that's what happened. And uh, we had three people went through sort of the process and we ended up picking the um Harris Williams, it was actually the investment bank who were working with us for sort of a three months, sort of a, um, a, a, a prior. And we picked them as an advisor because they really understood um, the US market and they had a lot of data to help back up what they were saying with regards to, you know, the people they, they met and they understood and uh, the process was sort of going through as well. And actually, we liked them, you know, which is quite important because you'd be spending a year plus with these people. That was quite nice. Um, and they had some good credentials in sort of the overall travel travel industry. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we picked some good advisors, uh, I would say. That was sort of the prep. Um, we then, you know, pretty much went right into the process where we started um, uh, creating the story. But we we had a few little curveballs, I would say. You know, so the first curveball was um, Livingbridge were interested as to whether the city would be interested in us running an IPO process. So, you know, we actually ended up, which is a very different process. That is a curveball, isn't it? Yeah, it was a very different process. So we, we ended up having to do the work um, to sort of see whether... Did you do I, did you do that process and then the secondary transaction or was it a dual track process? We, actually- we dual tracked it to a point in time. Right, um, and then went. So, yeah, exactly. So all the pitches that we had from the investment banks, they had to obviously, you know, be houses that had the capability if we did decide to go down the IPO route to sort of take us down that journey. Um, but we put a marker and a line in the sand that says, what's the criteria that's going to decide whether we run the, the you know, process as an IPO or not? So, you know, we, we did an early look deck. We went and met, you know, lots of analysts in the city and we spoke to them over a few days, got all the feedback, scored it all up, um, had a look at what they were saying about the business, had a look at how they would value the business based on how they looked at um, the EBITDA of the business and the multiple they would apply and the, mm. the rating they would use and whether they look at a forward number or the, you know, an actual you know, financial year number, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and ultimately, it looked like the valuation they were going to put in the business was less than what we thought we would get through a, you know, a trade or a private equity process. So we put a marker in the sand and that was a sort of a go-no-go and we sort of a yeah. ditched it. And so we then went into a full process um, where we're doing early look documents with people in the US, people in Europe, mm. um, people in the UK, you know, quite full on sessions. Um, we produced, you know, a fairly 40 page document, sent it out, you know, two hour meetings, pretty much flew over the world. And the whole purpose was to try and, if I'm honest, get the buyer pool as wide as you possibly can to create a competitive tension process. Um, and we went through that, that sort of a process. Um, 
and it was all looking fine. And then we had a sort of a preemptive bid on the business, which um, was like, what does that mean? Um, <laughs> and that, that created some challenges for us because, you know, it, it was a credible sort of a, you know. Um, Were they one of the parties that you'd gone out to? Uh, yeah. Yeah, and that's, so part, they, that's partly what caused the process. Um, to, to be honest, what, what, I, what I found really interesting, and I, you know, I'm new to this process, so it was all interesting to me. Yeah. You know, when we went to the US, we quickly realized the way we have to speak and talk to the private equity houses in the US is very different from the Europeans. In what way? Um, um, much more interested in, you know, fast-paced, top-line sort of a growth, much more interested in how much money they could put into your business, how quickly to make you go even faster. Um, the bigger the fund, the less time you had with them. The bigger the fund slightly more arrogant they almost were in some cases, if, if, if I'm sort of a blunt. Um, so, you know, we had to learn, you know, we got some advice from, you know, our, um, our advisors, but we had to learn how to just pivot quite quickly um, and sort of tell the story in a slightly different way. Um, but no, yeah, we had met um, uh, this particular house, private equity house in the UK, but also we then went to meet them in New York. And then after that, they were quite keen to accelerate the process. Everybody wanted to accelerate the process, but you know we were relying on the investment bank to tell us who was credible in terms of who could actually execute in a timely and mm -hmm. timely sort of a fashion. Um, so, so what happens with the preemptive? They just they just come along and say, right, here's a price. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, here's a price, and then um, we'll do it in two weeks. Yeah, yeah, and you have to sort of decide whether you think they can do it in two weeks or whether the price they're going to offer, you know. If you have a competitive tension process and there's a preemptive, you want to just make sure that there's a, a premium, yeah. you know, being paid. Because if you've suddenly got ten people interested and then you're just at one, mm -hmm. you want to make sure the premium that the one's going to pay is going to be significant enough. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was a bit of a dance. Um, it didn't quite come off for a multitude of sort of reasons. Um, it's still healthy. It was still um, credible, but we decided it wasn't enough of a premium. So we're going to continue to run a sort of a process. Um, so, you know, if you think of the numbers, we met 34 people, um, which is quite tiring, and it was over a relatively short space of time. We then produced a um, an IM, and we gave access was to that. Was it the same IM as the one? That, was it very similar to the one that you'd written right back at the beginning? Um, no. Um, <laughs> I, I guess the headlines were very similar. Um, if, if I'm honest, the business was much bigger because... Yeah, when yeah. we see it's, it's not the that's that's a daft question because you'd reached the, you'd reached the goals that you set within that original IM. Yeah. So did the business look like that original IM as you were taking out? It didn't actually. No, <laughs> didn't it didn't. Oh. No, it was. Uh, I would argue <laughs> that would have been beautiful, wouldn't it? No, it was. Um, I mean, the, the building blocks were there. You know, we have because the fuel for our business is stock, so we had stock. We just had more stock. When we wrote the original IM, you know, at the very beginning, we didn't really appreciate and recognize how much M&A we're going to do because yeah. it was never a buy and build sort of a story. And actually that became quite a big part because we were buying businesses very well and synergizing them incredibly well. Um, and we didn't expect to be in an international market. Um, and, and when we wrote the original IM, we, we, we originally said the investment house at the time, so that was Livingbridge, you know, they need to get three times their money back, which was sort of a typical formula. Mm. So that was a particular number. Um, but clearly we had massively outperformed um, yeah. where, we were, where we were sort of going. So um, the story was was a little bit different. Um, but we, we recognized back when we first wrote the first IM that it wasn't about 
the exit from Livingbridge to the next house, it was really 10 years from there because, you know, someone's going to buy us, could mm. be trade, private equity or whatever, but if it is private equity, they need to have a story. So mm. we were writing almost like a 10-year story um, in terms of what the business needs to look like, but the actual 10-year story we probably were writing was what we did in free, if that makes sense. Yeah. Wow. So we produced, we produced an, uh, you know, like a little mini sort of IM. Um, we um, gave it to about 24 people, I think it was, from memory, um, after all those 34 sort of meetings we had, approximately. And then we had um, eight bids for the business, you know, eight, eight first round bids. We then gave them a very, very short, sharp, um, you have to be able to exit. So a complete, sorry, within, I think it was about six weeks. Um, and we produced an IM that was good enough to, well, we thought it was good enough to almost buy the business from in terms of the quality of the IM and the size of it. It was about 128 pages. Um, and we did obviously full VDD ourselves, so the vendor due diligence. Um, and then we ended up with um, six management presentations and then three, three final um, bids. So the, the prep, I would say, it's a long story, the prep I'd say is, you know, how, what's the story to make yourself as appealing as you possibly can to the widest possible audience? Mm. Because, you know, creating competitive tension, which is what we did during the process, it really helped. That's really useful. The last question, because I think we're running out of time, your M&A experience, you've, you've alluded to it, 12 acquisitions. Yeah, we've done, actually done, um, we've done one really big one. You've just done six, one. Just... six businesses altogether, so it's oh, either 18 or it's 13. Are you referring to the recent one there? <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. So, you know, you've done acquisitions at small scale and now, um, you know, much greater scale. And no doubt you're going to do lots more. So... Um, what process have you have you developed for M and A? Well, the first thing we did is we looked at um, how do we make the addressable market, the TAM, as I'm now told it's called, the total addressable market as wide as you possibly can. And we knew to make it relatively wide, we organically were really successful, but we would need to just buy some things. So we created our own team internally as a commercial finance team. We found really good advisors who could help us almost boilerplate um, the financial due diligence and uh, some of the legal due diligence. We looked at where do we have lots of demand? So where do we have lots and lots of searches? Um, and then where, does, where do other businesses that might be for sale mm. have supply? And then how do we knock on their doors? But I think the art of what we did is um, we recognized it was relationships were really important and we spent a lot of time understanding what was important to the people who were selling the businesses because most of the businesses we're acquiring from have been around 25, 30 years, family owned. They're a big community supporter. So our story was all about um, making sure we looked after what was important. And then we really understood how we got synergies. Um, and every single deal we did, we produced um, a small teaser internally for our board. And that was crystal clear about we didn't care what we're paying for a business. It was more how are we going to get value and how quickly we're we going to get value and then how are we going to integrate it and how quickly we're we going to integrate it. Mm. Because the quicker we could integrate businesses, the quicker we could realize the value, um, but also we had to protect the asset. And in our case, most of the asset was just the, the annuity of the property um, that we were buying from sort of owners. Um, how did you protect? Um, by integrating as quickly as you can, by holding on to most of the staff that were local facing, that were all about the owners, um, by making sure every owner we acquired a business from was very friendly and would act as a referee, so very respectful, 
to the process. We were very clear that we wouldn't, we wouldn't play games. You know, we weren't sort of, you know, we'll offer you this and then we'll go along and we'll, we'll do find what we stuff say we're going to do. Yeah. So we were very, very, um, you know, professional and very sort of a true to the process as well. A lot of integrity. Um, and ultimately it was building internal teams. So M&A integration teams that the whole job was just to integrate as quickly as you possibly can. Mm. And every single business we've acquired, um, the average increase in um, bookings for owners across all the acquisitions is 42%. Wow. So... Did the, did the owners stay on an earn out or were they usually out straight away? No, most of them, most of them were, were sort of out quite quickly. Mm. Um, is, is, was there a, quite a rich um, field of potential targets to go after? Or? Yeah, there was over 100 um, targets in the UK. So we were just mapping out where do we have lots of demand, where is the supply, um, how do we buy those businesses and fold them into our machine, mm. leverage all the capabilities that we've got, and then um, deliver more bookings for the owner, but also deliver excellent service, yeah. um, hold on to the staff, yeah. um, and synergize. We, we call it flying rate synergy. You know, so, you know, that, was, that was always the number. Mm. You know, our investment directors at Leavenbridge, it was always about how quickly could they synergize it and what's the number? So if you're paying 10 times, let's just say, you know, how quickly are you going to get it down to X? And X always had to be clearly smaller <laughs> than the number you were paying because we knew when we exit the business, the likelihood is we're going to be selling the business off a multiple, you know, ahead of yeah, that. That's your multiple arbitrage. Indeed, indeed. But, mm. you know, it, it is interesting because I think what I hear is um, it's easy to buy businesses. It's really hard to integrate them and get the value. Um, I think what we've proven is we can do both. Um, I think it's quite hard to buy businesses of that size as well. I mean, some the smaller scale businesses, you know, you're, you're dealing with the psychology of an entrepreneur who, you know, it's not necessarily just about the check they're getting, is it? Relationships is really important. I mean, I would handwrite letters to the owners of these businesses asking for permission to come and talk to them. Mm. It's quite old school, but that's the that's what old we school works in yeah, many, it does. In it many does. scenarios. Yeah, you know what you don't want is necessarily some I don't mean this too disrespectful, but it's some, you know, faceless corporate yeah. sort of a, you know, advisor sort of a sending out a letter, it just doesn't work. It's like, you know, I'll jump in my car tomorrow and drive 300 miles and <laughs> come and talk to you. We'll have a coffee. If yeah. it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Yeah. Last question. Um, you've, you've gone through the process. It's been hugely successful. You're embarking on the next stage of your journey. Uh, management equity, um, company incentive schemes have been realized, haven't they? So what, what effect does that have on culture i suppose you know you've created a mission you're still on the mission but there's you know there's been an event and in some cases people have made a lot of money wouldn't they and what effect does that have on people well i think the first thing is you know one of our values is open and honest communication so from day one we always spoke to every single employee even when they join us we do an induction and part of induction is let me just explain private equity <laughs> let me just explain what what it's about so you know, there was no surprises when I was wandering around the building with, you know, teams of people wearing suits um, and all these advisors. So we're very transparent about that. So there was no surprises there. Yeah. Um, but but there's, there's good and bad. Um, I mean, the good is we created a lot of wealth and we were able to share that wealth. And I think one of the, the um, proudest moments in our whole transaction was we were able to reward every single employee mm. with something. Um, it wasn't part of our 
plan from sort of a day one, but it felt the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, and we were giving, you know, what some people would call life-changing sums of money to every single employee. And we did it based on length of service, not based on seniority or anything like that. And uh, I would do that again in a heartbeat and probably do more again next time around. So, um, the, but the, 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 the darker side, if you want to call it that, is... Yeah, you know, people who maybe haven't had wealth before and they go through this first time wealth sort of a creation, um, you know, money can do some weird things to you. It's sort of a, mm -hmm. you know, you quickly work out what, what your motivations are in life, whether you're coming to work every day because you really enjoy it um, or you're coming to work every day because you want to earn, you know, money to then go and do something else. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would say we had a bit of a mixture sort of going on in, in the organisation. Um, it did affect different people in a different way. And uh, some people did struggle with that, but ultimately, you know, the majority of the people in my organization wanted to go again. So it was like, great, this was amazing. Let's just, mm -hmm. let's just sort of a roll over a percentage. Um, so between 40 and 50%. And then let's, uh, let's sort of a go again. Um, it's quite a but, good idea to actually prepare people for that, that um, occurrence, that, that situation where the zeros land in the bank. Then almost get the zeros out of the bank straight away into something else, you know, into houses or so the cash isn't sort of sitting there. Yeah, we you did. Know, it we hasn't did. really changed your life. You're just only an asset that you didn't own before. You know? <laughs> exactly. So we did. We did a couple of things. One is obviously we worked with uh, management advisors, and I would advise anybody to get decent management advisors because they're uh, they're very valuable and they, they they've seen it all, um, and they helped us um, through that process. Um, the second thing is we. We also work with independent financial advisors. Yeah. And we brought them into the organization for private one-on-one -on -one conversations. That's great. To just help people understand, okay, I now need to think about inheritance yeah. planning or I now need to think about uh, gifting or I now need to think about these these things. And, you know, uh, I mean, most financial planners will talk about this idea of a three-legged stool, you know, in terms of, you know, um, mm -hmm. you know, investments and liquid and sort of a property and so forth. So we did a lot of that. Um, simple things like wills. Um, you know, we, we sort of said to everybody, I think you should just look at your will. <laughs> to, um, That's great. Get a decent will. Um, so we brought in the company to help with that as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, in, in general, I think, you know, uh, I, I saw changes in behaviors, but it wasn't quite as crazy as what I have seen before in my career when, um, So you were prepared for it, really. You, you knew what was coming. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I you know, I get my team- Money supermarket was a good flight. Money supermarket, money supermarket was, was an enigma. It was like, you know, you know, I've never, you know, there was a lot of car dealerships in Chester <laughs> did really well um, very quickly. It was a lot of sort of a, you know, banana yellow Lamborghinis and bright red Ferraris and, and so forth sort of appearing. Um, um, I did, I did, interesting, I did say to my team, I said, look, um, I can't tell you what to do, what not to do, but, you know, please don't sort of a turn up in some, you know, very expensive sports car, <laughs> drive, yeah. a, drive under the sort of the car park. Um, and everybody's quite sensible. But, you know, ultimately people rolled over a, you know, reasonable portion into the, yeah. you know, into the vehicle again to Super Trivium because we're all like ready to go, let's, let's do it again. And yeah. already we have set ourselves a really clear vision, really clear mission. We know what we need to do. They know what date we need to do it by. And, you know, we've modeled out everything we need to do to try and realize it. Um, and again, we're thinking on a 10-year cycle. You know, what is the what is 10 years from now sort of look like? What's interesting is when you get to a certain size, you know, you, you, you then have to start thinking more seriously about things like an IPO um, and a bit more seriously about, um, you know, the type of private equity people who would be interested because when you're getting into that, mm. you know, 800 million to a billion sort of a valuation, it's, the pool is smaller. Yeah. 
Well, Graham, that's been great. Thank you. I can say now, honestly, I'd love to have another chat in about 18 months, two years time, another podcast to see where you've got to at that point, because I've known you for about two years and you've been an incredible, been on an incredible journey. My sense is you're about to do it all over again. Uh, so yeah, it's, let's, it's, let's it's have another chat. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Definitely. Okay. Thanks very Thank much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Private Equity Power Talks, Map of the Maze. Please subscribe for a new episode each month and share with anyone in your network you think may be interested. If you have any questions for us about Pep Talks membership or anything else, please email us at info at pep-talks.co.uk. And thank you for listening.